Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 14. Uh, And as you're turning here in this room, I invite the rest of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 14 and those who are worshiping online who are tuning in to our live stream as well. I do hope that you uh, pay close attention each week in our worship guide at the bottom of the notes section of each worship guide. There is a little bit of a preview of what chapters will be studied the following week and I hope that you're keeping up. I know many of you are. You tell me that you're reading the chapters for the upcoming week. The goal of that is so that every night as you read the chapters that we're going to be studying the following week, one or two chapters at a time, you may be able to find some discoveries that, that my words simply add to rather than uh, supplement this, or rather than replace. My hope is that anything I have to say here on a Sunday morning, uh, by God's good grace, is simply one more thing that you have discovered Uh, in your journey and exploration through the the Holy Word. So today, ours is in chapter 14. But as we begin, before we start to read the text, I just want to remind us where we have been. So we are almost at the end of the, the first major section of the book of Exodus. You may remember that a few weeks ago when we began this journey, each chapter through the book of Exodus, I told you that the first 15 chapters of Exodus, well, all of those chapters are devoted to one purpose, liberation. The first 15 chapters are all about setting people free from the bondage of Egyptian enslavement. So it tells the whole story about how they got there, about how over four centuries they, they, they labored under Uh, the tyrannical leadership of Pharaoh and the empire of Egypt. And we we talked over these last several weeks about there is a physical bondage that they experienced, but but perhaps even more sinister, more crippling than the the back-breaking work of brick-making and the mind-numbing labors of working for the empire. More than all of that, there is a different kind of enslavement going on in these first 15 chapters of Exodus in which they are being set free, or from which they're being set free. It's an enslavement of the imagination. Because if you are enslaved to something for long enough, regardless of what it is, whatever your Egypt is, whatever your Pharaoh is, if you're enslaved to it for long enough, it can, it can have an effect of crippling your capacity to imagine your life in any other way. So along comes Moses, and Moses comes to the Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may go into the wilderness and worship. Because Moses knows that when you go to worship, 
as is the case everywhere all over the planet at all times when you go to worship. It's possible for you to be in an environment that stokes and provokes the imagination so that when you leave worship, you're able to imagine that maybe my life can exist in a different way. Maybe I can capture a vision of what God has in mind for my life so that when I leave worship, it's changed. I'm transformed. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go so that they may worship. And Pharaoh says, no, I know what happens in worship. I know what you're up to. And so he doubles down on the work and he becomes more aggressive in his, in his enslavement and his labor expectations. So then God sends plagues, 10 plagues, systematically, one at a time, to, as Eugene Peterson says, act like a wrecking ball uh, with each plague dismantling the infrastructure of, of Egypt and the power system that kept people enslaved. At the end of 10 plagues, Pharaoh relents and lets the people go and we went as we said last week we saw them go on this as the text says a roundabout journey through the wilderness we talked about what it feels like at times to go in circles in your life and and sometimes it feels like we go in circles but but maybe if going in spirals feels like circles that's a little better because sometimes your circles If they are spirals, will take you places. It still feels like you're going in circles, but it takes you places. And the people for 40 years will wander in spirals through the desert. But now we come today to perhaps the most well-known episode in the entire Exodus story. Today we read about the crossing of the Red Sea. Today we read in chapter 14, verse 1, these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi Hahirot, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, or of the Israelites, uh, they're wandering aimlessly in the, in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. So I, the Lord says, will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable, and it can be trusted. What happens? What happens when your roundabout journey leads you to a place you can't get out of? What happens when you come to a place where there is nowhere to turn, and you are absolutely stuck and have no idea how to get unstuck? Today, I want to talk for just a few moments about Tight spots, fight plots, and waterlogged fear. Tight spots, fight plots, and waterlogged fear. Will you pray with me? God, in this moment, we pause just long enough to take a deep breath. 
and to be reminded of who it is who gave us that breath. This moment in, in prayer, we pause long enough to acknowledge that you are in and among us in ways that we rarely recognize. And in this moment of worship, we welcome you. And we welcome you to awaken us to recognize you and what it is that you may be up to in our hearts and minds today. The word is open, our minds are open, our hearts are open, and we pray that your spirit would do something in us and among us that perhaps we barely expected when we woke up this morning. In the name of Christ our Lord, we all pray. Amen. Tight spots. According to the text, as we would read it, the writer would have you and I understand that now Israel has come to a place and they can't get out of it. They have surrounded themselves. They have come to a place where they can't move forward because in front of them is the Red Sea. They can't move to their left or their right because they're surrounded. They're flanked on both sides with unpassable terrain. They can't go backward because behind them is the, 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 the advancing armies of Pharaoh and empire. And they are right there in, in a tight spot. A tight spot. It's what I'm going to call this morning all through our time together a state of stuckness do you know what it feels like to be in a state of stuckness and not know how to get unstuck there they are and they're facing the sea i want you to know that in the bible and in the ancient mind do you know what the sea symbolizes i mean not only literally could they not move forward they are physically unable to move forward because there's water but beyond that, in the ancient mind, in the biblical text, the sea symbolizes separation. The sea, in the ancient mind and in the, the biblical narratives, describe that thing that prevents you from moving forward because of separation. In the ancient mind, mariners would go off to the sea and the sea monsters would swallow them up. They would never come back, see? Your family would go off on, a, on, a, on a, some kind of a voyage and, and they, just, they never came back. They must have fallen off the edge, you know. The sea is separation. The sea is that thing that separates you and makes you unable to move forward because of the thing that has separated. And I think that our world right now is vexed by seas of separation. Our families know what it's like to, to be unable to move forward in the family because of separation. They see the, so the funeral took place and, and nobody can agree over the estate. And so there's this thing that happens, this sea of separation, and we can't seem to resolve it. So because we can't, we can't seem to move forward. Or maybe the divorce takes place or, or the move happens, the job change, the death comes and something happens and, and after that something there's a sense of separation. We can't seem to get it together and until we get it together we can't move forward. This nation is on the shore of a sea of separation and we can't seem to move forward 
because we face a sea of separation, red and blue, liberal and conservative, Democrat, Republican, right? And because of the political divide that is all in and between and among us, we can't seem to move forward in who we are meant to be and who we can be. And I just got to tell you, as, as your pastor and as a lover of our nation, I got to tell you this, on a day like today, a weekend like Memorial Day weekend, we ought to be abysmally ashamed of the ways in which we as the people of Jesus Christ have actually contributed to the sea of separation in this nation rather than bridge it, rather than be what our Lord called us to be, which is peacemakers, rather than doing what Paul said, which is we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Instead, we keep on throwing more water into the sea that separates us, and we can't move forward because of this thing. Well, the Hebrews were in front of a sea of separation. The thing that was separating in them was their ability to be who they were meant to be. They were meant to be free. They were meant to be the people of God. But this thing was separating them from who they were meant to become. And and it's worse than that. For the Hebrews, to their left and right, they can't move because there's, there's this terrain that can't be navigated. And behind them is the advancing armies of Pharaoh, but not just Pharaoh. I want you to get in your mind that, that what's pressing in on them in their inability to move forward, what's pressing in on them is not just the military machine of empire and Egypt, but what's pressing in on them is the memory of everything that used to enslave them. When some of us get stuck, one of the major reasons that we stay stuck is because we know we can't go forward and we can't go to the left and right and oh my gosh, everything that used to hold me in bondage, everything that used to enslave me, all the ghosts of my past are coming like chariots after me. Being stuck is serious, serious business. And can I just point out one more thing about stuckness? At least in this part of the story, it's not their fault. Now, you and I both know that sometimes being stuck is absolutely our fault. Most of the time when I've been stuck in my life, it's been absolutely my fault. My problem, my sin, my mistake, my stupidity, I've gotten stuck and it's been me. But sometimes our tight spots come through no fault of our own. Don't forget, the people were led, the text is clear to say again and again and again, they were led there to that stuckness by God. What if you've done everything that you know to do? I mean, what if you've done everything that you know how to do to get unstuck and, and actually you've already repented, you've already said, I'm sorry, you've already tried to fix it and yet you're still stuck? Is it possible that you are in the stuckness where you find yourself because of a major truth about stuckness? The greatest transformation comes out of tight spots. We cannot truly be transformed until we come to the very end of ourselves and the end of our resources. Until we've gone through the crucible and we recognize, I got nothing. I got nothing. It's only then that we are able to be transformed. It's only 
when the seed falls to the ground and dies that it can spring up to new life. It's only when we fall down that we can get up. It's only when we die to ourselves that we can live again. See, good wine comes only after the grape is squeezed. The best olive oil comes only after the olive is crushed. Being stuck may not be such a bad thing because out of stuckness comes transformation. And here they are, right in the middle of having nowhere to turn. They can't go forward, they can't go back, they can't go right or left. And some interesting things happen when you're stuck. People behave in curious ways when you're stuck. Pharaohs behave in peculiar peculiar ways. Do you know that in this story, Pharaoh sees them in their stuckness. And Pharaoh says, ah, they've painted themselves in a corner. Let's go get them. Pharaohs, not not just that Pharaoh, but Pharaohs everywhere, all the time, anywhere, always. The people who are wired with the Pharaoh mind will always behave the same way when we enter seasons of stuckness. When people are stuck, when people are in a tight spot. See, the Pharaoh mind is the mind that is, uh, is fueled by ego, is fueled by violence, intimidation, domination, power, right? The Pharaoh mind will see stuckness and exploit it, take advantage of it, and even use the most curious justifications to back up why Pharaoh is chasing them down the desert to the sea. If you read on in the text in chapter 14, Pharaoh, this is how the Pharaonic mind works. Pharaoh says, why did we do this? Why did we let our workforce go? So let's go get them. Because after all, if we don't go get them, the economy is just going to crash. See, pharaohs will do anything it takes, even if it means exploiting stuckness for the sake of economy, for the sake of empire, for the sake of Egypt remaining in power. So we see in this text that God is the one who hardens his heart. That's always been a curious thing to me. We know that Pharaoh acts in in the most bizarre ways. Pharaoh chases them after having let them go. But we read that God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? But that was only after Pharaoh's heart had already been set. God allowed his heart, already resolved, to be hardened. And why? To demonstrate to the world what the end result is of the Pharaonic mind. This is where the heart of Pharaoh will take you every day time but why because the truth is pharaonic power is not real and it cannot last pharaonic power is not real and it cannot last and god is demonstrating what exactly does last See, people behave strangely when we get to places in which we are stuck not just pharaohs but people There is a great story in the Hebrew Midrash of this part of the text. The Hebrew Midrash, the Midrash is this running commentary, a kind of of narrative, a commentary giving opinion about what the passage says. And in the Hebrew Midrash, there's a story that says, when the people got stuck, 
they divided themselves up into four groups. They were panicking, and so they, they divided themselves up into four groups. And one group said, let's throw ourselves into the sea. In other words, let's give up. Another, another one of the four says, let's turn and let's fight. Let's not go down without a fight. We can whip them. We can take them. Let's turn and fight Pharaoh. A third group said, no, let's turn, let's surrender and let them take us back to Egypt. But there was a fourth group that said, let us cry out to the Lord. And that's what they did. And I'm amazed by this story because the truth is, knowing what we know about one another, we are all made up of all of that. And we have all four of those groups in our heart. When you and I come to a place of stuckness and we are, we're in a state of panic, there are all four options that emerge within us. And some emerge greater than others, but some of us, we have within us a desire to just jump in the ocean, jump in the water and let it go. Others, there's a part of you in the midst of your tight spot that makes you want to turn and fight. There's another part of you that makes you want to turn and just surrender. But I'm here to tell you, there is part of you that wants to cry out. There is part of you, and maybe you don't recognize it, maybe you haven't seen it in a long time, but there is still embedded within you the image of God, which means there is a part of you in the midst of being stuck that, that wants to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 121 when he reads and says these words, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord the, who made heaven and earth. See, there's a part of you that knows that when you can't go forward and you can't go back, you can't go to the right or left, you can still look up. And you can still call out to the one who loves you and who may be waiting on you to call out his name. We're all in tight spots from time to time, which leads us not only from a tight spot to a fight plot. It matters how you fight when you are stuck. It matters how you fight when you're stuck, when you feel like you have no options left. The text continues in verse 11. They said to Moses, this is, a, oh, this is great. Was it because there, was no, there were no graves for us in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And this fascinates me. Those two verses, verse 11 and verse 12, in the span of two verses, no less than five times the people invoke the name Egypt. In fact, just read it, listen to it again. They said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to live in the wilderness? Oh, what have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we told you in Egypt? Let us alone. We can serve the Egyptians. For we, we would have been better serving the Egyptians than dying here in the wilderness again and again in two short verses in the midst of their stuckness. Oh, Egypt, 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 Egypt. When you are enslaved long enough to a thing, it becomes the only thing you know. It becomes the only thing you know, and then you know it was no good. 
You know it was no good. It was unhealthy. It was life-taking. It was awful. But there is a part of you when you come to stuckness. There's a part of you that would prefer the evil that you knew over the good that you don't yet know. There's a part of you that would prefer the unhealth over what was familiar than the health and the freedom and the liberation of what is unfamiliar, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. And not one time in the midst of that little rant did they mention the name Yahweh. I mean, they cried out to Yahweh at first, but in their little speech with Moses, not one time in all that Egypt talk do they mention Yahweh. It's almost as if, in their mind, Yahweh is irrelevant. We'll give lip service to Yahweh because it sounds really good in worship to say things about Yahweh. Oh, he's, what a wonderful name. What a wonderful name it is, you know. Uh, but when a push comes to shove, we got to get out of this tight spot. Well, how many times do you and I, in a similar way, treat God as if God really is just kind of irrelevant? I mean, we give lip service and we sing the things, we say the things, and we, if you were really depressed us, we'd say we believe the things that, that God is capable and willing to, to redeem and save and fix and help. But at the end of the day, do we really believe that he is as interested in the smallness of our problems as in the bigness of our problems? Do, is it possible that the thing that you're going through, there's a detail of the thing that you're going through that you have actually never even considered the possibility that it is he who can rescue from that part. And, and yet you've never even invoked the name because all that you know is to do what you used to know, Egypt, 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 Egypt. This is fascinating uh, to me. So Moses has a reply. Moses says to them, but Moses said, uh, do not be afraid, stand firm, see the deliverance of the Lord, it'll be accomplished for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, shall never, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. This is, gosh, this is so convicting. Because you know what he asks them to do? He asks them to do something that is counterintuitive. Something that goes against... Every instinct they have in the moment, all you have to do is stand still. Are you serious? Really? I mean, usually in, in crisis mode, you, the, the typical attitude to take is don't just stand there, do something. I mean, when the kids were little and they would spill something, you know, and, and when they were really little, they, they'd spill it and they'd kind of stand there, kind of marveling at how it was dripping onto the carpet, you know. And you, you, so the attitude is good. Don't just stand there. I mean, react, okay? Um, emote. <laughs> do something. Don't just stand there. Do something. But Moses, counterintuitive to everything that is in them, he, he, he doesn't say don't just stand there, do something. He says to them, don't just do something. Stand there. Don't just do something. Stand there. And why? Because God wants to make sure that you know that when you are rescued, and that's about to go down, that it was no one but he who rescued you. Don't just do something. Stand there. I wonder how often you and I have to learn and relearn that lesson in the midst of our panic. Oh, well, maybe we can build a 
raft. We get across the sea. Maybe we can turn around. Maybe we can fight. I could take out a few of them. Instead of just doing something, stand there and watch. For he loves you and wants to show you something that you can't do on your own. I love the way, see, Eugene Peterson has a translation of the Bible called The Message. And, and at times, I love how he treats a particular story. And that passage that we just read a moment ago, this is, so Eugene Peterson translates it a unique way, but he ends it with this beautiful verse at the very end that you need to hear. Here's how he treats it. He says, they were totally afraid. They cried out in terror to God. Uh, they told Moses, uh, weren't the cemeteries large enough in Egypt uh, so that you had to take us out here in the wilderness to die? What have you done taking us out of Egypt? Back in Egypt, didn't we tell you that this would happen? Didn't we tell you, leave us alone here in Egypt for we're better off as slaves in Egypt than corpses in the wilderness? And then Moses spoke to them and said, don't be afraid. Uh, stand firm and watch God do his work of salvation for you today. Take a good look at the Egyptians today for you, you're never going to see them again. God will fight the battle for you. And then he, he has maybe the best line of the entire narrative. <laughs> he says, and you, you keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, man, you keep your mouth shut. I mean, ministerially speaking, it, it means uh, shut your yapper. Just stand there and shut your I wonder how many times God has meant to teach me the lesson, the lesson of the holy hush. The holy hush. Stop, stop, stop. Stop. Shut your yapper and watch. See? And then something powerful happens. So you remember from last week and the week before that well, they've been led in the wilderness by these big pillars of cloud and fire. So now in the text, here's what happens. This big pillar of cloud that was in front of them, now between them and, and the sea, the pillar of cloud, after Moses says, hey, check this out, Moses says, stand there and shut your yapper. The, Mos the, the cloud then moves behind the people and takes up a position behind them, between the people and Pharaoh, creating a shield, creating a space. When I think of that part of the story, do you know what I think about? I think about something that happened to me in eighth grade. In eighth grade, I was, uh, we moved, I moved schools. I went to a new school, I was, and I didn't know anybody. I didn't know a soul. And there was this other guy there who didn't know a soul either. He was brand new. We both came in in eighth grade and we didn't know anybody we became friends and his name was Wes and Wes was a black belt in martial arts I mean he was a he was a bad dude now, he was good he was really good he was my friend and and he now even has a set of schools and he's a he's a master and he does his thing but at the time we're just two eighth graders and we didn't know anybody and and we're there at the bus stop because we have to get on a bus to go to another another part of the town to go to gym class because our junior high is what we called it at that time, junior high. It had burned down, and so we had to go to another place to do gym. And we're, we're at this bus stop, and we're waiting to get on the bus, and, and I'm standing there just kind of, Wes is over here somewhere. And I look over, and there's this guy who's kind of this bully, this kind of 
jerk, you know. He's, and he's, he's bent down, and he's, he's got a lighter, and he is setting on fire this other kid's book bag. And I just noticed it, and without even thinking, and operative word here, without even thinking, I just kind of kicked the lighter out of his, out of his hand. So he's down, and he begins to stand up, and he didn't stop standing up. He kept, and I'm looking at his belly button, and this guy, you know, no kidding, he sends me flying, just boom, and I'm just all over the place, and I don't know which way is up, and my back is to, and I turn around thinking, oh, this is about to get ugly. I turn around, and I'm not kidding you, I turn around, and I see the backside of Wes, who had done this right here. Didn't say a word. Didn't make a threatening sound. He stood, everybody knew that Wes was a, the bad dude. All he did was stand there between. And it diffused the situation. Everybody walked away. That was it. He turned to me, and I said to Wes, Wes, man, yes, sir, you didn't have to get, you don't have to get involved. This is my problem. You know what he said to me? He said, well, see, we're friends, and if you got a problem, uh, we got a problem. And I think about that in this text because God, God says, look, look, stand there and shut your yapper because I love you and you are my people, and if you got a problem, we got a problem. And he stands there between his children and the advancing armies of empire, and it's about to get real. Uh, you know what happens from there. It leads us to the next part of our sermon. Waterlogged fear. He says to Moses, I want you to do something, Moses. Tell the people to move forward. I think it's in verse 13 or so. He says, tell the people uh, to move forward. The Lord said, no, back a little bit. I've thrown my, my, my friend off up there. The Lord said, no, back a little bit, the last one. I think it's around 13 or so. The Lord said, tell the people to move forward. And for you, you lift your, your staff over the water. And here's what happens. I find it interesting the order in which, see a minute ago I said just stand there, just shut your yapper, be quiet, don't do anything, don't just do something, stand there. But now that God has taken up God's position between, now that God has taken the initiative to protect his people, now he gives his people action. See most of the time you and I attempt to save ourselves we try to do all the fighting, all the talking, all the running, all the lying down. And God says, no, I start the act of salvation. I initiate it. But when I do, there is something that you must do. You must move forward. It's very interesting. He says, tell the people to move forward. Like, well, how are we going to move forward? The water is still there. And then he tells Moses to lift his staff and the waters will separate. But the order in which he says it is interesting to me. He tells the people to move forward. 
before the water is split. He tells them to act on faith and not by sight. There comes a point in which, yes, the message for some of us is just, just be still and know. But eventually, the message is believe and go. Be still and know so that you can believe and go. And I find that we all struggle at some point or another with one part of that equation. For some of us, we struggle with the first part of being still and, and just knowing that God actually loves us enough to take initiative in our salvation to finish this thing. But some of us have problem with the second part of that equation of believing and going. In other words, it's time to, to work out your salvation and fear and trembling. Move forward and the waters will move out of your way. Which leads us to waterlogged fears because here Moses lifts his hands. And the waters separate. And the Israelites walk across on dry land and it's beautiful. They get to the other side and, and Pharaoh, the Pharaonic mind, says, Ah, this is our opportunity. They sweep in and Moses lifts his hand back up. The waters return. It's interesting, by the way, what happens with the waters in the story. The waters of chaos. The text says that God sends a wind, ruach, to blow over the waters that they may separate. Just like in the book of Genesis, God sends a wind over the waters of the flood to separate and dry ground emerge. Just like at the very beginning of Genesis, when God sends a wind, the ruach, the spirit of God, over the hovering waters of chaos so that creation may emerge. God is always attempting to blow order into our chaotic lives. And there he is. They walk through the Egypt and, and every chariot and every man and every horse is deluged with the returning waters. And perhaps the most powerful and tragic and beautiful verse all at once comes here in verse 30. The Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and, and in his servant Moses. Perhaps the most moving part of this entire story is that they're standing on the shore, and they see more than just dead Egyptians. They see the death of everything that had enslaved them before. They saw the demise, the ending of, the death of everything that had held them from their freedom, which means they not only see a death there floating up on the shore, they see life. They see the birth of something that they never imagined possible, the birth of a new imagination to envision a God who actually can deliver us from our stuckness. I love what Eugene, Patterson, Eugene Peterson says about it. He says, if you really want to think about the first five books of the Bible, you can think of it like this, of being born and growing up. He says, Genesis is like conception. The period of the patriarchs is like uh, gestation. When you get to Exodus and the people are in bondage, they're in slavery, that's labor pains. The ten plagues come, and those are contractions. 
And when they cross through the Red Sea, it's the cosmic waters breaking so that the children can be born onto dry ground. And Moses takes them crawling and toddling over to Mount Sinai where they come of age. That means that Genesis exit, Leviticus becomes childhood. Numbers becomes adolescence. Deuteronomy becomes adulthood. There is this thing that they're seeing on the shore. And it's not just dead Egyptians. They're seeing the birth of their new life. And that's exactly what's possible for you and, and for me. That's what we do in baptism. See, this was their baptism. In baptism, this is what we do. We come to a place where we say, look, I recognize my stuckness. I recognize I'm at a place that I cannot deliver myself from. I cannot save, my, I cannot rescue myself from this place in any direction. So my fight strategy, my, my fight plot is to lift up my eyes to you. To shut my yapper and allow you to do the thing that only you can do. And in response to seeing you do the thing only you can do, you've got everything now. You've got me. You've got me. My fears have been waterlogged. My fears have been drowned in the sea of perfect love. And now I am yours. I am yours. See, somebody today on this campus is ready to pray that prayer. Somebody on this campus today is praying that prayer right now in your heart's even as I'm saying it out loud, and I'm here to tell you that today may be the day of salvation for you. Let's bow together and pray. Good and loving God, we stop just this moment to recognize that you are always up to some salvific work in us. That you're always recognizing the places where we are stuck. And sometimes you even let it happen. Sometimes you even let it happen because you know something we don't know, which is that we are most transformed when we are absolutely helpless. So we look to you this day to do in us what only you can do. Repair us. Embrace us, deliver us from whatever it is in our past that is approaching and pressing in on the sea. For we are yours. And we pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.